first it was a DHF grave, and now it's a DHF plague. Diseases spread every second of every day. No matter how far science comes, there always seems to be a new pathogen that takes human lives. Sometimes they become so pervasive that they can cause mass hysteria, and drastic measures are taken to contain them. Before the advent of modern medical science, many diseases were poorly understood. From their methods of transmission to their morbidity to their biological basis, doctors often found themselves trying to extrapolate partial information and fill in the blanks using their own intuition. But intuition alone is hardly enough to comprehensively tackle a global pandemic, especially in the days of old where information was hard to come by and mass media was still in its relative infancy. How did the United States fare against these unseen and nebulous forces of nature? We've already covered tuberculosis on our episode on Waverly Hills Sanatorium, episode 17 from the original run. But just before the TB epidemic that literally crippled communities in the 1920s and 1930s, an even more virulent sickness spread throughout the country. In 1918, North Carolina was struck with a mysterious disease that became locally known as the Blue Death. A global pandemic of influenza was exacting its toll across the world. Soldiers returning home from what we now call World War I unknowingly spread the deadly virus across nations, and by the time medical experts realized what was happening, the disease had reached such a level that it could kill a grown man in less than 48 hours. In those days, quarantine was often the only response to these crises. There were no vaccines that could be administered, and treatment options were bleak at best. This is a major reason why isolated treatment centers, such as the aforementioned Waverly Hills Sanatorium, became prevalent in the early 1900s. The doctors and nurses working at these facilities often contracted the illnesses themselves and were required to quarantine themselves at the remote locations, often located on hilltops where fresh air was thought to help remedy devastating conditions such as influenza or tuberculosis. From 1918 through 1919, influenza killed 500,000 Americans in one year. At one point in October 1918, it was estimated that 21,000 Americans nationwide died in just a single week. The disease took hold quickly, beginning with chills and high fever, and within just 7 to 10 days on average, it ended in either recovery or death. Outside of North Carolina, the Blue Death was also referred to as the Spanish Lady or the Spanish Flu because it was rumored to have originated in Spain before being brought to America. Some also called it the Grip, which I think is the most ominous nickname of all. Wilmington is thought to have been the first city where the 1918 influenza strain first struck North Carolina. As you probably could have guessed, Wilmington is a port city with a transient population constantly traveling in and out, often coming in on ships from other states or even other countries. 
By winter of 1918, graves literally could not be dug quickly enough to properly bury the deceased, and hospitals could not handle the sudden influx of deathly ill patients. Businesses, schools, churches were all shut down as people began to realize just how contagious the Blue Death really was. In 2020, North Carolina remains a major agrarian state. With its agricultural exports including hogs, chickens, plant products, tobacco, and turkeys, but in 1918, farming communities were hit especially hard because of how isolated they were, even from the rudimentary medical technologies that were available at the time. Racial segregation caused many problems, too, because racism was still rampant in those days. I mean, it's an issue even today, so in 1918, it really wasn't going well. And even when it came to life-saving medical treatment, the African-American communities were hit especially hard because they were denied access to those services, which we sometimes forget about, and it's extremely tragic. Imagine that the year is 1918 and that you're a farmer living in rural North Carolina. You've harvested most of your crops for the year, and winter is quickly falling. You've heard stories about a deadly virus, but your reading skills are lackluster at best because most people back then opted to work on their farms rather than pursue even an elementary school level formal education. It's just the way it was. So it's difficult for you to receive updates on the developments since newspapers and health pamphlets were the main resources that doctors were attempting to use to educate the public. One day you go to the market to sell tobacco or whatever you had farmed over the spring and summer, and after returning to your rural farmland, you and other people in your small community develop raging influenza in just a matter of days, and next thing you know, literally everyone is dead and you're living in a ghost town. That was happening every single day in North Carolina during the height of the Blue Death in 1918. The desolation and post-apocalyptic nature of this situation is quite staggering. If your immune system was not strong enough to combat the rampant virus on its own, contracting the flu was virtually a death sentence. Close-knit communities were driven apart by quarantine and fear. Luckily, by spring of 1919, the influenza outbreak had mostly passed through North Carolina. However, that's not to say this was necessarily the best of news. Those most susceptible to the illness had already died, and those who remained had been able to ride out the disease and had significantly lower chances of catching that strain of the flu again. This is essentially the same concept as how modern vaccinations work, except that lots of people died as part of this natural vaccination process. Nearly 14,000 people in North Carolina alone died of influenza between 1918 and 1919. The rapid spread and devastating nature of this illness is mind-blowing. It would not be until decades later that humanity would be equipped with vaccines and antibiotics to help prevent the spread of such a massive pandemic. The first flu vaccine was created 20 years later in 1938 by doctors Francis and Salk. Dr. Salk would later go on to use this experience and scientific knowledge to create the polio vaccine in 1952, saving countless lives around the world. 
He allowed these medications to be distributed for free, partnering with the March of Dimes, a nonprofit organization originally created by Franklin D. Roosevelt, who we were just talking about having an aircraft carrier named after him in our previous episode. Through these efforts, Dr. Salk directly helped eradicate polio in the United States. And not to get too sidetracked into the world of polio, but it's worth mentioning that instead of reaping massive personal profits off of this vaccine, estimated to have been able to put him north of $8 billion in personal fortune, Dr. Salk allowed the vaccines to be distributed and administered essentially free of charge, not just in the U.S., but in all areas of the world. University of North Carolina has a collection of handwritten letters from various individuals who lived through the Blue Death from 1918 to 1919. They're quite haunting to read as the severity of the outbreaks becomes more and more apparent to the authors during their correspondence. In archival records from 1918, one doctor wrote to her mother, The biggest danger comes when people think they are well and then do little things they should not. So I guess the takeaway, quarantine. Part two, Typhoid Mary. As we all know, there is a yin to every yang. And for every Dr. Salk who develops vaccines that save countless lives, there is a Typhoid Mary who knowingly exposes people to infectious disease and ostensibly gives zero fucks about it. This story was first relayed to me by my friend Amy, who was featured in some of the early episodes of DHF. So thank you for that recommendation. The story of Typhoid Mary is not technically from the South, the story mainly centers in New York City, but it was so outlandish and peculiar that I couldn't help but at least give it a short segment on DHF. Typhoid Mary initially went by the much less suspicious name, Mary Mullen. She had immigrated to the United States from Ireland in roughly 1883. She was a cook and from 1900 to 1908, worked for various wealthy families in and around New York City. Little did these families know that Mary Mullen had actually become an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid fever. Typhoid is an extremely dangerous disease that, if you're not vaccinated for it, it can cause severe health complications, including intestinal bleeding, swelling of the brain, and pneumonia, just to name a couple of them. In 1906, one family suspected that they may have been infected with typhoid fever, and they hired a scientist to research what may have caused the illness. It was soon revealed that over the previous six years, Mary Mullen had worked for a number of different families in the New York City area. And they had all mysteriously developed typhoid fever. It was noteworthy that 10 out of the 11 members of the family that Mary had previously worked for had been infected with typhus, and that was just the most recent one. Remember, she had been doing this for the previous six years. At that time in America, typhoid fever was thankfully very uncommon. So when it was revealed that multiple families that Mary had previously worked for all had come down with typhus, it became obvious that she had something to do with it. 
Like we said earlier, Mary was an asymptomatic carrier of the disease. This means that while she carried the disease and could infect other people with it, she herself displayed no symptoms. Therefore, Mary Mullen refused to believe that she had the disease and wantonly continued to work as a cook, infecting people with her contaminated food and carelessly spreading the disease throughout the population. This became quite a story, and she became dubbed by the press Typhoid Mary. At the behest of law enforcement, she was quarantined at a medical facility beginning in 1907. Up to that point, it was determined that she could have infected up to 25 people with typhoid fever. There are various photographs of Typhoid Mary while she was under quarantine, and it's kind of funny because you'd think she might look scared or nervous, but she simply looks pissed off. She eventually was forced to provide urine and stool samples so researchers could confirm that she had typhoid fever. After it was confirmed that she did indeed have the illness, she was kept in isolation until 1910, at which point she agreed to change her occupation and begin practicing proper hygiene to reduce the risk of infecting others with typhoid. After she was released from isolation, However, she soon went back to working as a cook and infected another 25 people and was then arrested and placed back under a forced quarantine where she lived until her death in 1938 at the ripe old age of 69. And her legacy continues to this day, with the slang term Typhoid Mary meaning a person who knowingly or unknowingly spreads something undesirable to another person. What have we learned here today? Quarantine yourself if you're sick with a contagious disease and wash your hands. Think about it. Don't be a typhoid Mary. As the death metal band Cannibal Corpse once said, plague leads to death, plague leads to death, plague leads to death, plague leads to death. Disease will spread and cover the world. Our extinction was by our design. <laughs> 25 illustrious episodes of DHF, and every single one has been independently produced. You can support this show by telling your friends about it. They're probably all under quarantine anyway, so just text or email them the link to this episode. You can also email me at hunterhkeegan at gmail.com with your thoughts. DHF leads to death. Dope original music by Last Known Images and myself was featured in this episode. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thank you for listening. Remember to wash your hands. <laughs>